This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. And right here was like the very end of Dark Canyon Rapid, but it's a hundred some feet below us. Covered in silt. We're gonna inch our way out here. That is a uh, emerging riffle here at Dark Canyon. Would that also be known as a uh, returning rapid? A returning riffle? It's a wee baby. <laughs> <laughs> People used to think, I did too, before we really started looking at pictures, that it was this wall on River Left that the notorious wall that the rapid slammed into was. But really, it's that wall over there. The alluvial fan came out of the canyon and pushed the river all the way over there. And so it's up against that wall that was really the, the crux of the rapid. And so that whole mud bank, that's Dark Canyon Rapids graveyard. This story comes to you from a confluence of a free running river and a human constructed reservoir. This is the intersection of the Colorado River and Lake Powell, sometimes referred to as Reservoir Powell. We start this story at the North Wash boat ramp in southeast Utah, where riverboaters take out after running Cataract Canyon. At this place, I am meeting Mike Dehoff, and together we will motor up the Colorado River to look at the impacts of a receding Lake Powell that continues to drop as the landscape and riverscape of the Colorado River return after being under a human-made lake for parts of the last 20 to 40 years. This is the story of an intersection of many things, a river and a reservoir, infrastructure and a natural landscape, a drought-ridden climate, and a human expectation that drought is temporary, and finally, of a river runner and a slow return of a once-lost river. Cataract Canyon has been featured on this podcast a few times. To be frank, it is close enough to the studio that knowing and learning about it comes with the territory, and it is serving as a thermometer of life in the southwestern United States and a thermometer of humans' impact on the planet's natural systems. Mike Dehoff is my friend. We first met in the late 1990s and reunited about six years ago to learn that we have both developed unique relationships with rivers. Eleven days ago in February 2021, I met Mike for this tour of a river and a reservoir. After driving through snow in Utah to get to Cataract, we were able to have four hours of river time with sunshine and blue skies, with Mike motoring and rowing us up and down the Colorado River where it merges into Lake Powell. You'll hear it all. Before we start, this following advert has a great giveaway of an incredibly dynamic river education tool. Today's advertiser is EM River. EM River builds river emulation tables for education and land use planning. And they are giving away a $5,000 EM River education table on March 13. That's right, they are giving away a complete table, and this includes shipping. These are beautiful education tools that emulate river hydrology. I will explain the product more later in the episode. You can get signed up for the giveaway at emriver.com. That is E-M-R-I-V-E-R dot com. And on Instagram and Twitter at E-M River Model. Again, 
This giveaway registration is happening right now, and the giveaway closes on March 13. Get your favorite school or nonprofit organization signed up. Welcome to the Returning Rapids of Cataract episode with Mike Dehoff, the Colorado River, and Lake Powell. Let's do some simple stuff. What's your name? Where do you live? My name is Mike Dehoff. I live in Moab, Utah, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to live on this river. How many days a year at this stage in your life are you getting on, on cataract? Um, last year we did five cataract trips. And you have a business. What's your business called and what do you do on a daily basis for work? So I run a business called Eddie Line Welding where we make goods for river runners for both private users, commercial folks, different agencies, federal and state agencies. Dry boxes, sand stakes, Lucy lantern holders, tables, better raft frames. In short, we like to make stuff to the quality and level that we would like to use on a trip. And we often just make stuff just for us to be able to go use on a trip to advance ideas. And then once we get those all figured out, we turn around and make a lot of them and sell them to people. And aluminum dories? Uh, yeah, although we're getting away from making dories as much because we have to charge so much for them. And in the face of droughts, they're not as practical anymore. This year, we're going to try to make a completely decked over raft. So it's like a dory meets a raft. Dory and a raft had a baby. Meg wants to call it the draft. <laughs> I want to hear about your history with this canyon. It goes back. So tell us, tell us when you first met this canyon and then what you've been doing with this canyon since that time. I first ran Cataract Canyon in, I think it was 1993. I ran it with on an Outward Bound trip where I was an assistant instructor. Ironically, one of my closest friends these days was the course director or the trip leader for that, Steve Young, who's now the head river ranger for Canyonlands. People also know him as T-Berry. And I've run it, I don't remember how many times. I know I stopped counting at 100 and that was a long, long time ago. It used to be that you would run it and you would get through Big Drop 3 and sometimes you would see houseboats or jet skis very soon after. Sometimes you'd see jet skis and powerboats in the eddy right below Big Drop 3, which was really this weird paradox of looking at one of the most fearsome rapids in Cataract Canyon and then seeing jet skis right below. Then 2002, everything changed. The reservoir dropped a ton, 130 feet, something like that. And for a while, this whole area was like boating in a mud canal. It was constantly changing every day. There were mud rapids, much like the one we're hearing in the background right now but it would be changing every week. I always wondered what the rapids were like that were underwater and how many they were. I remember searching when the internet first started coming out and it started being a bigger thing, Dark Canyon Rapid, and you couldn't find anything. And then my wife, who's a librarian, showed me a few tricks and I started really digging through historic photos at the same time while we started seeing some of the returned rapids really come back in dramatic change. And that's sort of when 
I compared notes with Peter Lefebvre and Pago Gerhardt, T. Berry and John Weissite, and even though I never met him, John Dowernwind. Would you explain Returning Rapids as this uh, idea, concept, group thing that you have, uh, whatever you've done with it, can you just explain what that is and what's going on there? The Returning Rapids project is a group of people who are lucky enough to know Cataract Canyon well enough to look at the changes and see how fast things are changing and to say, huh, that rapid's come back a little bit more. This rapid seems to start to be showing itself. What's going on here? Where's the next rapid going to be? And so the biggest backstory for your listeners is Cataract Canyon was 41 miles long before Glen Canyon Dam. When Glen Canyon Dam created the reservoir known as Lake Powell, it backed up the Colorado River all the way through Glen Canyon, all the way into Cataract Canyon, and only 40% of the canyon known as Cataract Canyon was not affected by Lake Powell, by the reservoir. And so there were somewhere between Some people say as little as 45, some people say as many as 60 rapids in Cataract Canyon. And when the reservoir is completely full, there's 22 to 23 of them. So 35 to 40 rapids gone. And when you read river maps around here, the ones that were published in the 90s, there's this odd void on the map that says areas affected by the inundation of Lake Powell. And you look at it and you had been following the topo lines of a river and where the cross hatchings are of rapids up until you flip the page and see the areas affected by the inundation of Lake Powell. And it makes you just go, huh, what else was there here? And so the returning rapids group was a couple people who said, well, is anybody tracking this? Is anybody trying to keep track of this? And people have said, no, not really. I asked my friend T-Berry, who's the river ranger, if anybody who's tracking it says, well, I'd love to, but I'm too busy doing a bunch of other stuff. And so there were two guys, John Dowern and John Weissight, that were doing a lot of taking photos and photo recreation. And they were really focused on the sedimentation rates in Powell not so much the rapids and we through selfish reasons were more focused on the rapids pete even when we started it we had a share drive that we dubbed bonus rapids because that was the simple way that pete would describe them to his customers that he would have on river trips when we start putting it all together and publishing it into some of the field binders or the website stuff i know from the field binder we did in 2019, a lot of guides will come back and say, it's changed the way a cataract trip goes, where it used to be, you'd get to be on Lake Powell and everybody would just sleep or lay around. You'd be like, oh, we're in Lake Powell, it sucks. Like, and now with the field binders, people are handing them back around and it gives people a chance to understand what has happened here. And in a weird way, I feel like all that is just an introduction 
to what we're going to see in the next five years. I think the next five years are going to be very dramatic for this place. And what is it you think we're going to see in those next five years? Right now they're forecasting that in the next 24 months, the reservoir is going to drop another 50 feet. This year could, that time of year where you don't really want to say anything um, because there's a lot of snow coming, but the reservoir could not really gain that much water. And then because of downstream delivery demand, the reservoir level is going to go down all the way to 35, 25 above elevation, above sea level, elevation above sea level. And what does Deadpool mean? Deadpool means the dam is no longer able to generate electricity. It no longer is able to be a functional power plant. I want you to tell me more about a concept I've heard you talk about. You have expressed to me in pre-conversations to this, to this day that in the effort to gain water for the West, to dam the Colorado and create power to gain water for the West, that you think it's important to express the things that Cataract Canyon has gone through. Can you tell me what you think Cataract Canyon has gone through? Before Glen Canyon Dam, Cataract had a reputation for being pretty fearsome to river runners as far as beating up their boats, putting holes in wooden boats, crushing wooden boats, pinning wooden boats, people losing their boats. And so where the Grand Canyon was really held up on a pedestal as the Grand Canyon, Cataract had more of a feared sense to it. A lot of the pre-large dam river runners talk about how the Grand was a long, beautiful trip, but Cataract was a place to be feared. It earned the nickname from the Cole Brothers, the Graveyard of the Colorado. And in a way, it was deserved. So many of the pictures we find in old archives are of people fixing boats, reaching under the water to boats that are pinned on rocks, boats pinned in the middle of the river. And so it was a deserved name. And... Now it's the graveyard of the Colorado in a different way in terms of like, in my mind, the Colorado River really dies going into Powell. It's a free, wild, vastly fluctuating river in cataract in the areas that aren't affected by Powell. And then when it comes into Powell, especially when I first started running it, it would die. It would drop its mud, become clear blue water all that mud filled up cataract. All that mud is slowly now getting carved out of Cataract Canyon. But, you know, for the listeners, we're looking at these mud banks that are covered with invasive weeds, clay shelves that are slowly sloughing into the river. And it's just, it's a wasteland of a riparian small zone before you get to the the old canyon walls that climb up away from the the clay layer the sediment delta that the river is dealing with now so that's what cataract is 
gone through. That's what the Colorado River is dealing with in this lower part where it's trying to recover from the effects of the reservoir. So we're, we're in the middle of Dark Canyon Rapid and it's, it's this quiet. You hear that riffle, that's a tiny, tiny riffle 100 yards downstream. But literally we would be in the middle of it getting pounded 100 years ago. We're surrounded right now by not only the canyon walls, but these 30, 40 foot walls of sediment that is the leftover byproduct. So Mike, take the time to explain this silt and why it's here, wh where it comes from, where it should be, and if you want to tie it back into that byproduct concept that you spoke of. The Colorado River in Cataract Canyon moves seven Mississippi barge loads of sediment moving by any given spot in a day. Moving water can carry sediment, still water cannot. When the reservoir, when the dam was built and the reservoir started filling, the reservoir got up into Cataract Canyon and the Colorado River coming into it, all that sediment dropped out because still water can't move the amount of sediment that the Colorado River can. And the entirety of Cataract Canyon, well, 60% of Cataract Canyon, lower Cataract Canyon, got covered in sediment. In some places it's 150 feet thick. That's why I look at Powell as a giant settling pond because it really is uh, infrastructure that settles the sediment out of the Colorado River so that it can go further down in the system for the water to be harvested. We started calling, a long time ago, we called it just the Lake Powell formation of the lake sediments. And um, we were out here with a USGS scientist who said, you know, I think Powell's name has been drug around too much and trashed. He, he deserves better than to have this stuff called after it him and so uh, that's when we decided to call it the Floyd Dominey formation because Dominey was the fella that chose to ignore the rate of sedimentation that would happen in Powell. He was the guy who championed it. He was in charge of the Bureau of Reclamation and he wanted Powell to go through and credit where credit is due. It's interesting right now, there are a bunch of scientists we work with who are writing a paper about the sedimentation rates in Powell and the filling of, as, as Powell filled. And some of them are saying, we can't call it the Dominey Formation. We can't call it the Dominey Formation. It's too controversial or it has to be named after a place. Geologic layers have to be named after a certain place. That is the naming nomenclature that we use. And uh, to that, I kind of say phooey. The name's got to stick. It needs to be the Floyd Dominey Formation. There is more to the sediment conversation than just the mess and cataract. The sediment is soil. It's nutrition. The river gathers sediment and moves it downriver when the river is at different flow levels. When a river is at higher levels, it picks up more sediment, and as it floods various riparian zones, it drops that sediment and adds new soil and nutrition to the land. This is a very important motion of the river and sediment together. Because so much sediment is trapped in this one canyon, in Cataract, it is not getting to Glen Canyon, or the Grand Canyon, 
or the other lower canyons, or even the delta at the Gulf of California. This matters to the river health well beyond cataract. This matters to the migration corridors and pathways for numerous migratory and stationary creatures. This matters to the ocean delta. This matters. After floating through the mud riffle that now sits possibly a hundred feet above the original Dark Canyon Rapid and talking at length about cataract and silt, Mike again fired at the motor and we cruised downstream on the glassy water deep in the canyons. And then Mike saw a beach that was new to him. He slowed us way down and we trolled past. And we talked about that beach and a few other damn things. So... It's a little thing, but we're seeing more and more beaches come out. And I never thought I'd take beaches for granted the way we used to, but the more the river recovers from the reservoir, the more it's less clay and more sand. Like this beach wasn't there last year. It's probably from the water having receded some, but it's beaches, it's a sign of a healthier river system. I was just talking to uh, one of the science partners that we have who's getting ready to do a science trip down the Grand Canyon. And he's been doing science down there a ton for years. And he was talking about how the company that he's going with issues cots to everybody who goes on their trips now. And his response was, what do you mean? You can't just sleep on a beach like we always do? And the person said, no, there's not enough sand to sometimes sleep an entire trip on the camps in the Grand Canyon. All the stuff that was supposed to be beaches down in the Grand Canyon is all stuck up here. You're saying that these beaches are able to exist now because they are more sand less clay and that's because the lake level is dropping for the previous 30 miles allowing the current to stir up the sand and relocate it downstream yeah in glen canyon and grand canyon and further on it used to make it to the ocean now it's stuck in powell which is the southwest biggest settling pond this is the byproduct of mining the colorado for its water when you say that this is the byproduct of mining the Colorado for water, you're saying that this is the tailing pile, the tailings piles of the debris that we would see in the mountains or anywhere you have a mine that you would see that stuff sitting out there. Yeah. You know, I think I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes you think a river is just water, but it's so much more than that, especially the Colorado where it's the sediment it moves, it's the beaches it has, it's all the flora and fauna along its banks, it's the light rippling off the water. And so if you just are in it for the water, a lot of the other stuff becomes a bit of a plugged up wasteland. When it all settles out, it can't do its thing in equilibrium that it often does or it wanted to do before the dam. You said it was the stuff that was overlooked in the quest for water, the beaches, the sediment, the animals, flora, fauna, and the rapids. I guess contextualize that a little bit. Do, do you perceive that that was an intentional overlooking? Is it an accident or is it bad science? What are your thoughts there? I don't know what was in 
the heads of the people who did the planning. There was a lot of talk about how just the water was needed and how that the reservoir would be a great recreational resource. And those are things that are true. I don't know how much they care to square their plan against the other things, against the downsides of it. I'm reading a book right now. It's called The Rivers of Power. It's a great book. Totally recommend it. It's a kind of this, this historical view of rivers around the world. And, and it also talks about modern things happening with rivers to include these rivers in the West and what we've done with damming and how it's so complicated now that we are up against these water shortages because of climate change. And it also goes into this story about the Mekong in South Asia. They're planning over a hundred dams on this river. One of the greatest drainages in the world. And you know, the, the, the Chinese built the Three Gorges Dam on the Yangtze and, and you know, that thing shifted the orbit of the earth by a fraction. It's so big, but, but there's, this, there's this thing going on where we are, in our country, we're sort of realizing the damage we've done with dams and around the world, they're, built, they're catching on to the dam building trend. I don't know, I mean, I, I don't really know what a question is there, but it's like a campfire conversation. Do you have any, like, what do you think about that when, when you're out here, eyes on the, on, the, on the debris, on the leftover tailings of mining water out of this river, yeah, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I hear your question in that. I think of it this way. So I run a small business. And in my business, I'm always thinking about what is the cost of stuff. And the cost isn't always like what you pay out in money or what the customer pays you and you gain in profit. There's so much more cost, especially when you're a tradesman. You know, it's how many more times are you going to be able to squeeze your hand so tight to grip something so it won't spin out of your hands when you're working with it or um, what are you going to ask your employees to do that one day they're going to say nope sorry I don't want to do that anymore um, and so I really wonder if the grand equation of the true cost of our way of life and our looking to have resources in the southwest if that equation has been truly uh, populated with all the factors and it sure seems to me in the great damn building push that it wasn't there was a maybe a cultural naivete that we can't afford to be naive about anymore in the face of climate change It's time to tell you more about the giveaway from our advertiser. How about some geomorphology in a box? To be more specific, I am talking about a $5,000 river emulation education table. This table is being given to a school or a nonprofit organization by EM River. EM River is short for Emulate River, and that is exactly what this table does. EM River tables have a process model that shows how rivers interact with landscapes and naturally change over time, and how sediment travels. What makes these models unique is the modeling media. Instead of sand, they use finely ground thermoset plastic media that moves easily and provides excellent visualization of river processes in condensed time. EM River has been building emulation river tables for over 20 years and has their product in 20 countries and across the United States. 
These models are used to teach hands-on STEM education and land use planning. Their clients include K-12 schools, higher education geoscience programs, museums, soil and water conservation districts, and highway departments. This giveaway closes on March 13, and the giveaway includes shipping. You can find them at emriver.com. That is E-M-R-I-V-E-R dot com. And E-M River Model on Instagram and Twitter. The pictures and videos tell a beautiful story of a river education tool. Get signed up for this high-quality giveaway and tell them the River Radius sent you. We stopped motoring and floated for a bit as we looked with binoculars at a place in the canyon where the returning Rapids crew has been looking for a particular rock with some modern inscriptions as they attempt to complete a photo match. This photo matching has been a significant tool in the quest to understand the mud and silt levels. So would you tell us about the photo thing you're doing? So you, yeah, what are you doing with photos? Tell us more. And is it a validation that the Rapids are coming back? Is it kind of like a... Yes, we now see that they are, or is it just fun? Is it interesting? What is it about doing this photo matching thing that you're doing? It's a treasure hunt in a way. Photo matching isn't something we invented at all. It is a way that, I suppose some people would call it a scientific method, to show or track how things have changed over the years. We take pictures from 1920-something, 1950-something, and we try to go find the exact same spot where people were standing when they took the photo and take it again. And it's a way to see, oh, this is how much of this damn mud has covered over that area. Or, yeah, wow, that rock's coming back out. This rock's coming back out of the river. That means we're getting closer to Gypsum Canyon Rapid coming back. It's a way for ta- us to take the record of the past and compare it to what we're seeing in our current days and to see how the river is restoring itself and if it's going to go back to how it was or it's going to be different in how it is now. And if you take pictures over time, then we're able to see how fast that rate of change is, um, where new rock slides are, all that stuff. And how many how many photos how many photos in total did you start off with that you wanted to match? And that's probably a growing number. And how many have you matched? And then do you have some do you have some mysterious ones that you're still trying to find the match for? So it's a constantly growing amount of photos. I actually downloaded a couple this morning for us to try to match on our way out. I think a rough guess, I would say it's over a thousand photos that we have. The master document that we have for all the different photo matches is over 400 pages long. Um, And one of the crazy things is, so I kind of figure that every single photo match costs us like $300 in permissions and everything. And there's tons of photos that we have that we've matched that we can't publish yet because it costs too much money for us to get permissions for those photos from archives to be able to publish those things. Um, And we we could match a lot more, but as as a bit of a confession is 
when I'm out doing trips, like doing trips with you or when just my wife Meg and I go on a trip, you definitely reach a breaking point where you're like, okay, I've matched four or six photos and I'm seeing, oh, yep, here's where the river recovered a lot. And oh, here's where it is still totally effed. And you reach a breaking point of like, ah, oh, I just don't want to think about how much we've screwed this place up anymore. And then you just need to go sit down, read a book, put your oars in the water, row down river for a bit, um, and hopefully get some more next time. To your last question in that last series of questions you had is do we have photos that we're having a hard time identifying? We do, and one of the things I'm working to do is to put those on our website so that anybody can help us match those pictures. Because there are a few that you look at and you're like, where the heck is that? You know, we share them with a lot of the scientists and the park service people that we work with, and everybody has their guesses. And some of these old photos are flipped, which means they're developed backwards or Maybe they're mislabeled and it's really of the Grand Canyon and not up here. But the stumper pictures are kind of fun because it is a little bit of that extra little, like, I figured it out in the whole treasure hunt of trying to locate where things are and what's going on. You're a river runner and a, and a boat builder, frame builder. Are you a scientist? It all depends on your definition. I don't call myself a scientist. I just think just an observer of the world there's part of me that the scientific world and the academic world gets so hung up on speaking a language that not everybody can understand which is good because they produce information and I think help a lot of folks understand the world better but I don't think it's accessible for everybody. I think we want to use a simple language. Like I jokingly say it's like an adult picture book or unleashing the Mormon gene side of my mom's family and scrapbook on or something like that. <laughs> um, I think the goal is just to be able to have what we do communicated to people in a simple way so that everybody can understand it. So it's accessible when you have a really good photo match that shows people this is what it was, this is what it is now, it doesn't take much to understand it. We've actually had a scientist look us dead in the face and say, just so you know, you guys aren't scientists. Did you, did you laugh, agree, high five, tell them yes we are, anything? I had to think about it for a little bit. I'm an introvert. I need to process stuff and come back to it. <laughs> I laugh about it now. In a way, I kind of think, damn right we aren't. We're doing something else. <laughs> so let's go back a bit. I'm curious about this thing that you said. We can frame this, this conversation around returning rapids, pal dropping out, and your beginning interest in it that it was kind of a selfish nature, like a, what rapid's coming next? Like what's going to now extend out our, the fun of this, this river trip that, we're, that we go on a few times a year? It seems like it's become more than that now, that you are certainly still interested in running new rapids, and that's fun, but there's something else going on 
that's important to you. So a couple of questions is, am I, am I correct in assuming that? And then what goes, what comes after that? What, what's the, what's the, the deeper explanation of the yes or the no? There's part of me that thinks there doesn't need to be maybe a deeper explanation. In the simplest form, we run Cataract Canyon and take pictures and look at the change. But what I do think is a really interesting thing that we're seeing is that it's become a hub for all these different scientific interests to study river, reservoirs, river systems recovering from a reservoir, water use in the West. So there's that level of things. I think it just comes right down to a love of the river of this river and our effects on it and yeah I mean it's always changing that's one of the best things about coming down Cataract Canyon I think it's cool because in a way you root for the river because it is a little bit of the champion in the story and after you've had so much chance to know it and understand it I think you learn to appreciate some of the subtleties. So in some ways, I don't think there needs to be more. I think it's just a story worth telling to people that there's this river, some people decided to dam it. There were a lot of rapids. Some of them went away. Some of them were coming back. Let's take pictures and tell the story to people. A 25-year size thanks goes out to Mike Dehoff for getting me on the water and telling the story of Cataract's Returning Rapids. You can find the Returning Rapids project at their website, returningrapids.com, and on Instagram and Facebook with their name. Those links and other information are also available in the show notes. This year, the River Radius is actively working to grow all things about this podcast. If you like what we do, please tell your friends and share this episode with one of them. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. Our new Source to Sea project is starting in March. You can contact us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. I think we want to use a simple language, like an adult picture book. Scrapbook on. So it's like a dory meets a raft. Dory and a raft had a baby. Meg wants to call it the draft. I'm currently guilty of, guilty of being a river system monogamous. For me, the Colorado River system is my thing. That's, I'm not gonna go cheat on the Colorado and run the middle fork of the salmon or anything right now. To that, I kind of say phooey. <laughs>